Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast for adults. You are listening to a weekly publication, produced every Friday morning. This is our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Today, we present episode 363, Dr. Craig Webster, on Munch Research. Don't forget to stop by our webpage for information about this show and others. KinkyCast.com With the coronavirus being active, please practice social distancing. Here's your host, Woody. Thanks, Max, and welcome to another edition of the Kinky Cast. Online with me is Dr. Craig Webster from Ball State in Muncie, Indiana. How are you today? Doing really great. Well, let's see. I think I've been warned that I'm inviting the most vanilla person in the world on the cast today. That's pretty accurate, probably. Okay. Uh, well, welcome to the Kinky Cast and uh, diving into the deep side of the pool. You have an interesting paper that that caught my attention. And you do have a profile on FetLife, which, again, is interesting for a vanilla person. But you have researched munches around the country. Have you gone beyond the borders? Oh, definitely. I do international research. Okay. What prompted you to write about munches? Well, it all started back out um, in about 2015 when I uh, came to a move to Muncie at Ball State University, and I started moving into event management and teaching event management, and I wanted to do something different. Um, I looked at a lot of the research that had been done in event management before, and I thought, well, let's bring some diversity to this and bring, and bring something new and different into this. And I, I knew about BDSM, and I'd heard about munches, and I started playing with the idea of learning about munches as an event that occurs in a subculture. And I wanted to understand sort of how you run a munch and the importance of munches to the subculture. And um, a lot of this comes from my background in political science, because what I was really interested in many years ago as an undergraduate was sort of the international communist conspiracy that happened between the wars and how communists all over the world were organized and they could recognize each other, they'd meet up, they'd get money flowing from Moscow, uh, but they couldn't really operate in the open. And it, I saw parallels with kink culture. Hmm, interesting. When did you start working on this project? Well, I started playing around with the idea uh, early in 2015. Um, and I was a little nervous about it because I thought maybe this is a little too far out and strange for an academic sort of thing. And I'm not really particularly interested in the psychology of kink or BDSM. I was much more interested in the sort of organizational practices of people working underground. Um, so it, it took me about six months or so before I even mentioned to co-authors and friends that this idea. And I keep I kept on expecting someone to say, no, it's a terrible idea. Don't do it. And no one did. Every time I mentioned it to someone, they thought, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty viable. Um, and I wasn't really sure that it would be publishable research in academic circles, uh, but that, try, that turned out to be completely untrue. It's been quite successful and quite good. You're not uh, a sociologist. You, you're approaching this from a different angle. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very much a political scientist, and I, I had worked as a political scientist. Um, I have a doctorate in political science, and I worked until, what, 2015? I was working in international relations and political science. So uh, I was also teaching tourism courses on the side and I've, I've been publishing on tourism for quite some time. So event management as a field, I was 
doing research in was quite new. Um, and I just, I, I do take this from a very different perspective. And I, I think that's a fairly fresh perspective. A lot of the research in BDSM and kink is, is done by psychologists. And that's not particularly interesting to me, um, the psychology of it, as it is sort of the, the organization and sort of the symbolism and workings of the subculture. Okay, so let's uh, roll that back then. So as we look at a munch, we're talking about, you know, fairly small uh, local or regional uh, organizations. And, and I'm using the term organization very loosely because it's typically mm-hmm. started by a single person and, uh, and sometimes a group. Uh, but from the, the word event management that you used earlier, this seems like, like a, a 500 horsepower lawnmower at some point. Yeah, it can be. What's interesting for me is that in research and event management, people are really worried about the commercial elements and the big stuff, festivals, street fairs, local community development. But I think there's also events that are very small scale and and the methods by which munches are run is, I call it sort of anarchist organization, if that makes any sense, that somebody identifies themselves as a leader, they set up munches, nobody's elected generally. Um, they, they volunteer their services. They do it as a public service and people come to munches or don't. And I thought that there's some lessons to be learned about how to do things on the cheap because that's what munches are done. I mean, very cheap. Um, you know, everything is done with a zero budget. Most times, uh, there's no incentives for the people working it financially, virtually. Um, and I found that very interesting and it, and, but it also shows and from the data I've, I've gathered, the importance of the munch for the community is just, it's unimaginably important. It's largely a gateway into a local community. <clears throat> That's right. It's also a, a sort of a safe way that people can learn about what BDSM and kink is. And for many play spaces, uh, it is a barrier of entry to where the, uh, the munch master uh, vets new newbies to a certain degree uh, and allows them to to take the next step into the community. Uh, otherwise, they might recommend against them and say, you know, they, they may not be uh, with best intentions. Vetting is the word that comes up. And vetting is, is not, it's interesting because the word vetting, um, I, I hadn't heard a lot and it's used in political context sometimes, but also within the context of munches and BDSM, the word vetting comes up quite a bit, surprisingly. Um, it's a filtering process. And I think the munch is a great way, I guess, to figure out who is sort of a more trustworthy character or, or desirable character than another. And so we talk about, uh, you know, an anarchist point of view. And, and so here is a person that, that thinks that they are good for the community and they're going to, uh, to lead this thing. And they go down and find a restaurant in the area that uh, uh, seems to have an open mindset and uh, typically end up getting a banquet room or something for free uh, with the intention that people will buy lunch or dinner there. And, uh, and off you go. And, Recruiting is um, a little bit difficult because when you start a new munch, you're largely working on word of mouth. You know, you may put up uh, an event on FetLife, and if people stumble onto it that are in the local area, 
uh, then you can get some traction there. But you really need to get a couple people to get word of mouth out to make a munch happen. Yeah, it's what was also interesting to me is the language of the munch is uh, is very interesting. Now, what I had done is I was introduced to the concept of the munch in in Muncie, Indiana, where I I, I, I believe it or not, I, I spent about six months or seven months thinking about this, and then I went to um I went to a an event on campus where they talked about consent, and there were people from um, from BDSM community talking about the importance of consent at this meeting. Uh, and I thought, oh, these people are operating in the open. I could speak to them after the meeting, which was probably the best thing I ever did in terms of my research. Um, just to ask them, you know, about munches and, and would this be a good idea? And then I was invited to a munch. So I was, <laughs> but the important part was that even the word munch, what I find really intriguing because I think there's a political element there that if we're in a hallway and it's a crowded hallway and I mention a munch, unless you're indoctrinated into the language of BDSM, you probably won't know what that is. So it sounds like an innocuous sort of word that doesn't have any connotations that are negative or anything. It's just a word. Um, so you're free mostly to talk about a munch in a, in a busy place. Um, it's, it would be very different if you said, are you going to go to that BDSM meetup tonight? Or if you shout down the hall, I'll see you at the munch tonight. Very different in terms of who hears it and what it, what it means. And that's sort of my, my interest in sort of um, how subcultures can function in ways hidden um, and with certain protections by using even language um, that, that can protect. Uh, the other thing I learned in doing this is some of the language, uh, because I do international surveys, uh, the word munch is quite international. Uh, one thing that I learned from this is that, again, learning about the munch in Muncie, I was also introduced to the language of the slosh. The slosh is mostly a Midwestern term that refers to what in other places would be called a liquid munch or kinky drinkies in Britain. Um, again, I think the slosh is kind of a good language too in a place where you have to work in largely covert ways. Because if I shout down the hallway to you, Woody, well, I'll see you at the slosh tonight. Um, if you don't understand kink or BDSM, this might not make any meaning, have any real particular meaning to you. But if I shout down the hallway, I'll see you at Kinky Drinkies, that would be sort of a, a red flag in a, in a vanilla world. So that language is interesting. And even in Germany, you know, they use the word munch. Unless there's going to be non-German speakers, then they use the language of BDSM Stammtisch. Okay. Interesting. So if you yell down the hall, uh, see you at the munch, I might yell back, no, I can't go to that, but I'll see you at Spanksgiving. Yeah, that would kind of load the room at that point. But, but you can see as a political scientist how I'm interested in this and the use of language to protect people. And we also see that in the way that people use um, uh, scene names, uh, which are pseudonyms that are, uh, for those of you, well, I, I think most of the people listening in are, are, are kink aware. Um, you know, you have scene names, and I think there's about two or three reasons for scene names. I think one is the protection of the individual, because again, Woody, I mean, if I'm sitting around and saying, I was talking with Woody at a place, if that's your real name, you can link it up. And it's just, it's really identical why we have, we call him Stalin. I mean, that's a made up name, the man of steel, so that it would, it would confuse the police so they wouldn't know who you're talking about or you know, who's the name in the face, Trotsky. I mean, they, these are just nom de guerre that people were using 
to confuse the police authorities. And I think the, uh, the scene name does that. There's also an element, I think, of, and I noticed this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's, there's a theatrical element to the kink slash BDSM. And, and that's why it seems to attract a lot of people that like to get dressed up and assume a different persona. Um, so, I mean, when you're going to a munch and you're using a different name, maybe it's to protect yourself because maybe you're a dentist and you don't want people to know that you're a sadist or associated with this lifestyle. It could hurt your business. Or maybe it's because you sort of like using a different persona and dressing up and being addressed by a different name. So, I mean, there are different purposes, but I think protection of the individual is one of them because there's still a lot of discrimination against people. Um, and that's another thing that really influenced me is uh, we have all this discussion about um, diversity and inclusion, but it's noteworthy who isn't typically included in this uh, and who's excluded from what is considered to be polite and nice things to be tolerant of and others who are, we're free to make fun of polite society versus us. Yeah. And, and there's people wouldn't sort of publicly make fun of, uh, of people that are gay. Again, there's sort of a tendency that if you're gay and, and live sort of what seems to be a conventional mainstream lifestyle, you've adopted a kid and you live with it as a couple um, that's okay. But if you have, you have a foot fetish, well, that's, yeah, that's something for ridicule. And I think that's, that's really kind of weird and also sort of offensive that people still, I mean, and there's good reason that kinksters have to protect themselves because there is a, an element of ridicule and uh, I don't think that's good. Well, as we talk about polite society and what's acceptable right now, we need to be hypervigilant of other people's kinks and not judge their kinks. Right. What I'm into and what you're into uh, obviously are probably two different things, but on the same token, I am not here to judge you and you're not here to judge me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If we take it out of the, the one-to-one uh, -one conversation that it's in and put it into public society, who are we to judge somebody who has a foot fetish or, or has some kink that is not in the top 20, whatever that would be. Yeah. And they want to live their life in their kink and they want to dress the way they want. You mentioned, you know, play actors and what have you. There are, are two really distinctive groups. You have like the cosplay people, the, the younger people that are into yeah. dressing up and, and looking like characters. Then you have um, the older line, the, the Leathermen, that are uh, deriving something of a uniform from it. And it's like either the, the military or the scouts or something, you're, you're going up in rank, you're, you're uh, gaining recognition. And so you have these two different forces, and they're not necessarily homogenous with each other. They come from different idioms. Again, they should not be judging each other. Old line and even the new guard and all the different terms that are used, kind of depending on where they, they fall on the timeline. They're all kinksters, and, and they all get their kink on in whatever way they want. The newer line, the cosplay, the under 35 group, a lot of them have their own munch. So they are looking at it from a different point of view. Even for me, this has been very interesting to learn about language and discuss some of the language that's used. Um, for example, BDSM and kink. At one time, I was thinking of BDSM as a... Um, a subset 
of kink, but I'm not really convinced of that anymore. I think there are two different umbrella terms that are intermingled, sometimes used synonymously, and sometimes there's distinct differences. For example, and, and what's also interesting when you talk about BDSM and kink is that kink also encompasses things that aren't sort of um, obviously um, sexual, but are sensual in nature. For example, people that like uh, to be tickled with balloons or something that isn't directly and necessarily um, sexual in nature, but there's a sensual element to it that makes it kink because it's, first of all, not particularly mainstream. And secondly, because there is sort of, they're sort of in a gray area where they start going into sexuality when it's a, a, a sensual sort of experience, I think. And so when you take all these different uh, interests, and, and we'll call it that because everybody has an interest in a different sort of thing, and you try to blend them all together and try to bring them into a room at a munch and have a conversation. And sometimes the conversations are a little hard at first because everybody feels like a newbie up front. You know, there's those people over in the corner that have obviously known each other for 20 years and they're acting, you know, they're talking in code <laughs> and all those sorts of things. And so it's a matter of getting into it. And the munch master is kind of the key person to act as the introducer in chief and to make things happen. Well, it's also a protector to prevent um, sort of dangerous people from entering into that. So, I mean, I think that's a real key is, and you know, how do you prevent possibly dangerous people from getting involved in that society? And the Munchmaster really plays a role in that. We were talking about uh, kink and BDSM and the numbers of the population. And I don't know if this is the U.S. population or, or if it's worldwide, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Susan Wright from the NCSF was on and she was um, throwing out some numbers in uh, the people that have uh, reported into a survey that was run by a research organization. And the numbers vary between about 22% and 43% of people that identify as kinky in some form. And those are higher numbers than I, th I think a lot of us wanted to think that was true. Yeah, that, that seems a bit high. But again, the definition of what is a kinkster becomes really difficult. Um, when I'm working on this research, I mean, I had to think about, well, what is a kinkster? What is kink? Because there are people out there practicing it, but don't know it. Um, I don't know if you agree with that, but, you know. There are, you know, we've said on the cast many times, you know, if you've had sex with a blindfold on, you're kinky. Yeah. And that is one of the things that was in the survey is, you know, how many of you have done, you know, blindfolds? How many of you have done uh, tie-ups? And that's when the numbers get pretty high. When you start to refine it beyond, you know, who wants to have sex in a harness, you know, da 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 da, mm -hmm. then the numbers drop. So the question is, where is that kinky line? Well, well you also have people that never done a practice that's particular that would be ever considered kinky, but they've fantasized about it. And then you have different societies. I mean, what's kinky in Germany? I think you have to take it up. That they take it up to like ten or eleven in Germany. And you compare, you know, what is kinky in Germany would be considered um, much more extreme than what would be in many other societies. Study I saw, I think the U.S. society seems to be unusually kinky relative to the other societies. This, but this was done 
quite a number of years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And the Durex study showed fairly high levels of, um, of Americans uh, using bondage or having had used bondage or masks or blindfolds in situations, which is, I think, very interesting. I came into the scene in Europe, in Amsterdam, and that was pretty kinky over there. And that's what really piqued my interest initially. The Europeans, I think it, the scene seems to be qualitative, and I really can't put my finger on it, qualitatively different in places like Germany and Denmark and, and the Netherlands than it is in, in the U.S. and Canada. And I don't know why, but it, it's much more, I guess, sexualized in a way over there. And it's more integrated into the social life. Whereas in the U.S., it seems to be more sort of a pastime or, or practice that people do sort of as leisure activity. I think you're right. Um, they have these giant traveling sex shows in Europe that go from, uh, you know, arena to arena. We're talking about major from a societal point of view, it's just like, oh yeah, you know, that's, you know, that's down at the arena. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And everybody just accepts it and moves on. And I saw, you know, some of my first needle play. I saw some of my first wax play, some really nice flogging on a cross, all at these giant sports arenas. And I'm going, oh, it's an intimate little gathering for 10,000 of my closest friends. Yeah, it's a, it sounds more like a U2 concert than it does, a, <laughs> it does. <laughs> something that would happen. <laughs> or Megadeth or something, I don't know. As we talk about society accepting, and, and we, we then kind of boil back down to the munch as an entry channel, if you've had these uh, desires or thoughts, um, I know I have had since I was a kid, of tying people up and having great fun. Playing cowboys was always fun with the local neighbor girl. <laughs> so, uh, not that it makes it more or less acceptable. It's just that when I got to the age that I could go out and explore my desires, the, the munch gave us an opportunity. Before we started recording today, we, we talked a little bit about the first munch was out in Palo Alto, California, called the Burger Munch. And that kicked everything off. What year was that? 70? I think it was 78 or 79 or so. Uh, I think they got kicked out of that place. I think there were a little too many of them and were too rowdy. They got kicked out of that venue, as I understand it. it. A lot of this is more mythology and folklore than it is necessarily historical truth. I don't know. I, I had been to that exact place after the kickout. Uh, they, they tried to restart it, and not that many people showed up on the second go-round. Uh, they, they stayed with the venue that moved. But throughout the, the San Francisco Bay Area, there was a ton of munches. In fact, there was something kinky that you could do seven nights a week, whether it be a, a class or a uh, discussion group or a munch or what have you. There's always something going on. It's an amazing institution. What, what was interesting for me is, first of all, I had no budget to do this. I did have access to a lot of the things at the university, and I put together a questionnaire, and I I checked it with uh, people locally that had been involved in uh, in organizing munches and, and knew about munches, and they checked sort of that I was asking the right questions and that I wasn't using, and, and this has been very sensitive for me, not to use insulting language or anything that could be misconstrued wrongly, that I am somehow anti-kink or anti-BDSM, because and this has been one of the great challenges when you get onto FetLife and you're trying to do research 
again, with the permission of the people at FetLife. I made sure the caretakers knew this, and we went through all the right protocols with the university and with FetLife. But you still get people that were suspicious of me and what I was doing, that it was going to be somehow an anti-kink product. Um, and, you know, there are people that are notifying the caretakers that I was doing this, even though I had their permission. And, uh, and I really want to thank the, the, the caretakers at FetLife for allowing me to do this research using FetLife. And, and I hope that the kink community sees some of the value in what I've done in terms of learning about this incredible uh, institution of the much. I think it's probably the most important institution, at least social institution within kink. You might disagree. No, from a social point of view, it is the meeting point and it is a regular event that people can put on their calendar and, and go and, and get caught up with the uh, kinky world. And of course, that was back before COVID shut everything down and Munches just disappeared. Problem what's, number two. Well, what's interesting too about the munch is when, when you talk to people about munches and from the research we have is that um, munches aren't just kinky events. And, and I think that's kind of an interesting thing. One of the great findings of um, that I get from the munch participants is that they don't particularly drink very heavily at munches um, and they uh, they don't find them particularly sexually charged uh, atmospheres. And, and for outsiders learning about munches, you think, oh, a bunch of kinksters together in a bar, you're going to be drinking heavily. It's going to be like just complete mayhem. And it's quite the opposite. You're much more likely to hear people talking about, you know, where do I get my car repaired and childcare issues than you are really to, to hear about some hardcore kinkster stuff. And it's designed that way on purpose. First off, it's designed to be a non-confrontational environment. And so uh, you're not going to go there and somebody's going to end up beating you on a corner. Not happening. Also, the organizers encourage people to dress down, street clothes, not, not any kind of outfit. And I have been to munches where people walked in and with an outfit or with a person on a chain or something like that. And we are non-consensually tweaking the vanillas that we walk past and uh, they may have kids and have to explain what's wrong with those people over there. Uh, and you also bring in the attention of other people. Maybe there's somebody there who has a private business that they, and they don't want to be outed as a kinkster because it could hurt their business. Exactly. When going to a munch, crank it down a notch and don't offend anybody. Woody, I, I got to tell you, if you've, if you've been attuned to these things, I mean, you and I can both, if, if we go to an Applebee's and someone says there's a munch here, you and I can find immediately what table the munch is. Yes, we can. <laughs> yes, we can. I just look for black leather jackets and, and I'll, I'll notice some other sort of subtle things, hair colors, you know, the, the way, even behavior is much more subtle. If you watch you know, behaviors, you'll f figure out who's a dominant, who's a submissive in a couple, um, all sorts of neat little collars. You'll, you can figure it out. But if you're uninitiated, you won't notice. My watch just sent me an alarm. It says um, the misfits munch is tonight. So <laughs> not, not that it's going on, but, uh, you know, and those sorts of things I have in my calendar. And, you know, I, I love to go to the munch. And yeah, you know, you walk in, group of people sitting at a at a long table. You know, they put together tables to extend the length of it. There's something about them. 
And usually the, the munch master, you know, jumps up and greets you at the door or on the way to the table. Well, well, it's actually the organizers. And, and I mean, I could go over some of the, the, the findings from the organizer survey, which is kind of interesting because we're talking a little bit about, you know, what happens at a munch. With my research, I'd, I'd interviewed over, I think, uh, over 200 uh, peop, uh, munch organizers. I got about 238 completed surveys. Again, not really having a budget for this, I was still able to do a fairly international sample of this. I, about 100 of those 238 people were in the U.S. and Canada, I got 20 munch organizers, U.K., 15, Germany, 12, and then a bunch of other countries, including you know Brazil, Denmark, Bulgaria, India, Thailand. So it, I got a fairly international sampling. A lot of the organizers, even sort of in a demographic sense, because a lot of them are married or, or cohabitate, they have children. Uh, again, just knowing that these people are more settled, a lot of them that organize these, it's kind of an interesting thing because it's not a bunch of single people having a meetup as people from outside the culture would think. The most interesting thing about Kingsters in general, but Munch organizers specifically, is how educated they were. The sample I had of 238, 6% of them had doctorates and 19% of them had a master's degree, which is pretty amazing. The thing is how highly educated the group is, 6% as a doctorate. In the U.S. population, I think we're a little under 2% of the, of the population as a doctorate. I think something like 6% or so has a master's degree. So this is a very educated uh, population of the organizers. Yeah. We also have some other things. In terms of a lot of them are real veterans of munches, where about 60% of them had organized for 20 munches, so they're highly experienced. The most important thing that they look for in a munch in terms of the venue, and this is where I get the event management stuff in there, is they look for um, a venue setup that allows for private conversations. Uh, they also look for a location of a venue. I don't, and I'm not sure entirely what they mean for location may be sent easy to access for people that they think will come um, as well as the size of the venue. I'm probably thinking optimistically, there'll be a lot of people. What they don't seem to matter much about is the type of music that's being played at the venue. Um, another interesting thing, which I think reflects the ethos of the Munch organizers is they look for venues that um, don't have particularly expensive food and drink. And they're looking for generally a, a decent quality of food and drink at those venues. And I think that's that reflects the inclusive ethos of it, that you don't want to go to expensive places because it would price a lot of people out. I also like the munch because it's it's one of those events that you decide how much you're going to pay, whether what you're going to eat, how much you're going to eat and drink, and what you're going to eat and drink. Uh, it really determines the cost of the event for you. In this economy, that's important right now, too, when munches do get going again. A lot of us don't have the jobs that we once did, and so it's going to be a, a regulating factor. Well, also, if you're going to have a 19-year-old who's just kind of curious, and if there's some sort of expensive place, and they're not going to drop $25 or $30 for uh, dinner, but they, they will have $10 to dedicate to this or $12, um, I mean, you really decide your own cost. One of the munches that was here, it was on a Sunday lunchtime uh, at a barbecue place. 
And it was scheduled to start at 1.30, so right after the normal lunch crowd. And we, we would go in, and they'd start lining up tables. And the, um, the church crowd was often there. And so they're all in their Sunday finest with their kids all scrubbed up and looking cute. And, you know, here comes this group of strange people. <laughs> we could sure clear out a restaurant. Well, that's, that's interesting. The, the, the other funny thing about the, the munch is how they're, uh, how they're typically publicized. Um, I did the research mostly in, all on FetLife, and I found that about a third of them advertise or publicize these events just on FetLife. But it's interesting, too, that word of mouth is a big way of publicizing things, too. You got over a quarter of, uh, of the organizers say they, they put out the word by word of mouth which um, I think is sort of an interesting is an old fashioned way of uh, publicizing something. Facebook is also used, which I find very interesting that you can use uh, references to munches on Facebook. The kinky cast has a, a Facebook page and, you know, we talk about each episode, but the, like the pictures and stuff are all PG rated. So nothing ever would uh, fire the sensor at Facebook, for instance. Well, Facebook is also, again, using the word munch. I mean, if, if you run a search term on a munch, you get Edward Munch, the artist, um, and, and then you get references to this type of meetup. What was also kind of, I don't know if you know this, but before I started doing research on munches, I'd only found two references to munches in the academic literature. One which explained sort of the origin of the munch out, out, out in the West Coast. And the other one, which just within one table had the word munch, but it was never explained in the text. So this is all I've ever found academically about munches within sort of peer-reviewed, typical. And, and that's what made me really want to get into this because I thought I can, I can make a big impact. Um, and if people reference it, that, that's good for them. And it's, it's sort of making the first steps in that path in the snow is sometimes the easiest. And it's appreciated later down the line. Well, I'm certainly uh, sure that there's a lot of uh, things we can learn about the munch. Uh, and on the show page, we'll have your links up to uh, take a look at these uh, documents that you have put together. Yeah, you, you can also look in FetLife where I have my a lot of information about um, sort of uh, what I've published out of this. There's, uh, there's a recent thing that came out a few months ago, which uh, was done by a Canadian university, which... Uh, I, I, I wrote a, a chapter, which is actually a learning tool. It's about leisure. And I wrote about munches and, you know, the, the, the difficulties that, that munch organizers have and how they have to function in order to set up munches. So it requires students to think of an issue such as if you were to organize a munch, what would be your concerns and how would you choose a venue? I also ask about, um, you know, how, how would you open a, a, a public dungeon? If you were to do that, to also think about the issues of you know protecting the the anonymity of people coming in, uh, protecting their reputations, and and thinking about sort of practical things in terms of health and safety. One of those practical things is dealing with the personal identity of the attendee. From one point of view, you have to make sure that they are legitimately old enough to be there by presenting a driver's license, for instance, with their real name on it. Secondly, there is the, um, the sexual predator, if they're legally restricted not to be there. It, it's good to know that. But it's difficult for a club owner, for instance, 
to be able to police that because they don't have the records of the sexual predators. A little bit of an imbalance there. At that point, once you get in the door, then you change your persona to your, your fet life name or whatever it is, and you move on. One of the things that people are really worried about is that if those records with our real names ever gets collected, either by the police or by whatever, or, or just outed onto the internet, a lot of people then are outed. And that is a huge problem. I understand completely. And, and um, I, I think it's it's uh, really very strange that we're open about so many things, but kinksters still really have to operate in the shadows to a large extent. Right, because we have no rights. We're not a protected group in any form. Right. And that's why I, I like doing this research, because I, I think there's... A, you know, there's so much stress on, on doing diversity-related research, and I just see diversity differently than a lot of the other people do in the university. Uh, I see it as, um, you know, there should be more freedom for people that are excluded from the typical categories that we think are protected for their freedoms. Well, sir, thank you so much for being on the cast today. I really appreciate uh, walking down this road with you. It's great to see that people are doing research in um uh, our, our field of lifestyle, because we want to know more about what makes us tick and why we do the things we do and how to connect with people, how to socialize. And in the year 2021, we are going to all hopefully start to reconnect socially, get back to munches, get back to play spaces. And so, you know, let's take a look and see what we can do to get back. Well, I, I hope my, um, my research can be of some assistance to others and help them understand. Even I was even sort of toying with the idea of putting together some sort of Munchmasters sort of guidebook or brochure to help people. And, and I think you can see some of my research is that, that how do you do it? Well, I've gotten a lot of information from people who have successfully organized many Munches all over the world. And I get, you know, very good ideas in terms of how to protect people um, how to deal with people that are problematic in their behaviors when they come to munches, uh, how to exclude the people you need to exclude for various reasons. It's, it's just a really helpful tool. And I hope people see that, some, especially summary reports that are available online uh, from me, that uh, it can help them understand what the munch is. And if you're going to organize a munch, maybe it'll give you a few tips. Well, sir, Dr. Craig Webster, thank you again for being on the show, and we will uh, have all your information up on the show page so people can uh, take it to the next level. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Wood. You have been listening to episode 363 of the Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the Kinky Cast. We welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max. And, we wish you a very happy new year.